Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Emerald Zoysia in times of chick, weed, and hen bit. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. You're going to want to hang around today. It's an exciting interview. We're going to be speaking with a man who's a whittler, a calligrapher. He does origami, an electric guitar player, and by the way, massive allograft acetabular reconstructions. Of course, I am talking about Dr. Aaron Rosenberg from Rush Presbyterian, so you're going to want to stick around for that. Can we talk about masks for a second? I've seen some really interesting interpretations this week. I just had to share one of them. It's bike week here. I saw a gentleman riding down the road, no helmet on, but he had a mask on. It was fluttering in the breeze at 60 miles an hour, but he was protected. Nobody else on the bike with him. Uh, I was at the Ford dealership the other day, and a lady pulled up in a convertible. Top was down, nobody else in the car, and she was dutifully wearing a mask. It looked awesome. Uh, we had a guy in the produce department the other day with what looked to be like an air cleaner from a car on his head and a pipe going up to it. I saw a lady in that same Walmart Express with an N95 on her forehead. Not sure what was going on with that. Uh, all kinds of fun and exciting interpretations. Uh, under the nose, under the chin, the dangler, the mask hanging from one ear, doing God knows what. Uh, there's a lot of interesting, interesting uh, interpretations going on out there. What kind of mask wearer are you? Had an idea the other day of how to personalize a mask and make it more human and kind of get the facial expressions involved there and was sharing that with a customer and said, you know, what if, what if you made a clear one so you could at least see the mouth? What would you call a mask like that? And immediately what came out of his mouth was suffocation. And then I, more I thought about that, I said, okay, yeah, saran wrap, that doesn't end well. So... We move on. So today we're going to talk about affability. We've talked about two of the three A's, ability and availability. You could do a 10-year series on just those three words, right? Uh, So we're just going to whittle a little bit at a time on this thing. So today, let's whittle on affability. So let's consult Webster's and get a definition of this word. It's not one you hear every day. Pleasantly easy to approach and to talk to. Friendly cordial, warmly polite. Good stuff. All this stuff is uh, Captain Obvious of what we need to be in our accounts, in our clinics, at home, uh, everywhere. And it's just good stuff. You want to be that person that's easy to approach and to talk to, you know, all these things. Relatability is a, is a word that I think is a very close cousin to that, of being relatable to people. And then they feel like they can connect and um, that that we are easy to approach. I think you have to be relatable for someone to feel that you are easy to approach. So on that note, let's open up a package I like to call reading the room. It's a critical skill. It is an art. Very few people know how to do this uh, as just a gifting. Uh, most of us have to work on it, and it is not easy. It is not easy. And in this particular situation that I'm going to share with you, it cost a rep his career. 
He wasn't with my company, but I heard a lot of stories about what took place, and I thought I would share it just to be a teachable moment for all of us, right? So we always want to practice affability with our surgeons, right? Be relatable and connect with things that they like to talk about. So on this particular day, a rep was in the OR with a surgeon, a circulator, a couple nurses, a CRNA student. And the rep found out that the doctor had just gotten back from the Bahamas. So in his desire to spark a conversation, asks him about his trip and then goes on later to share all the trips that he had taken to exotic and far-flung locations all around the globe, right? Nothing wrong with this, just trying to connect with your surgeon, right? Well, that would be a huge wrong. Uh, Number one, the assumption was that the surgeon wanted to talk about that in front of the staff. Uh, And that is something that I have learned over the years that many surgeons don't like talking about their stuff in front of the staff because it can make them uncomfortable. Yeah, they may have a Lamborghini Huracan, but is it something they want to chat up in front of the circulator who's never going to be able to afford that? It's something that is just uh, manners. It's being affable in a sense, right? You want to be relatable. So a lot of surgeons are very sensitive about that. So when we pull something out of them that might be in that gray area, we put them in an awkward position uh, as well. So let's continue the story. This rep continued to do behavior like that over and over and over again, putting himself on a peer level with the surgeon and asking surgeons questions about things that honestly they didn't want to talk about in front of the staff. And one by one, his supporters dropped until he woke up one day and literally had no business in an account where he inherited quite a bit. At the end of the day, he became a man without a country. We could take this one step deeper with another situation I had. A couple different reps from different companies were standing around a surgeon, and that surgeon was talking about uh, the fact that he wasn't really working because of COVID at the time, had no money coming in, and was really worried about how he's going to pay his bills, had a kid in private school, and on and on and on. And uh, one rep in particular volunteered the fact that, well, my company's taking care of me, and they're going to pay me no matter what, and and all that stuff. And we all just kind of stared and thought, not the right time to share that story with the surgeon. Uh, it, It made everybody feel awkward. He was not reading the room. So let's sum it all up. Affability. We all agree with that, right? That we need to be pleasantly easy to approach and we need to be somebody that people want to talk to, relatable, friendly, cordial, warmly polite. All that stuff's obvious. We need to be that person. But do we just plug and play in every situation? No, we can get into what's called presumption and, and be very presumptive and being affable in a situation where that's not what's needed at that moment. And what you think that you're saying to connect with somebody isn't really connecting at all. In fact, it's making things worse. That's when we really need to read the room. Reading the room is your insurance policy against your affability going sour on you. So what is reading the room? It's just like national treasure, right? One clue leads to another clue and leads to another clue. And then we've got a four-hour podcast. Well, we're not going to do that. But I think it's a good end point. Uh, reading the room for me, and, and I say that as someone who historically uh, did not do that well. I had to learn it. Again, it's an art. I have a, a knob on my reverb pedal for my guitar, and it's called pre-delay. And actually, it sets a delay at the front of the signal, not the end. So instead of hearing delays and repeats after a note, it puts a delay before the note. And, and I think likewise, we need a pre-delay knob on our selves as reps, that when we walk into a room, that we delay a moment. We don't just start talking and 
lighten up the room. Let's just see where the conversation is going. What are they talking about? And then how can I be an additive to that conversation uh, instead of just jumping in there with affability and caffeine and and taking over and going somewhere that I may not really want to go? And knowing our surgeon's comfort level, what they like to talk about, knowing the circulator and their financial struggles, is that the right place to talk about where I just went in light of somebody who may be having a hard time right now because of the layoffs and the the COVID restrictions on employment. And these are times to really be reading the room in a lot of people's lives, correct? So quick review, ability, you've got to be able to do this job. You've got to know the technical aspect. You've got to know how to communicate the technical aspects to your customers. Uh, availability, we always have to be available. Our phones need to always be on and be ready to roll at a moment's notice. Always be available. And then lastly, affability, be that rep that's easy to approach and to talk to. Friendly, always have a smile on your face. Be relatable to your customers. But at the same time, have that sense of being able to read the room and know when to turn it on, when to turn it off. And and again, that pre-delay that says, okay, now I can talk about this instead of just jumping right into it. So speaking of affable and all that, Dr. Aaron Rosenberg just embodies that word to me. Uh, He's always been easy to approach. I've asked him questions after meetings before and just so easy to talk to, just a friendly gentleman, cordial Uh, very polite and always has a smile on his face and has done some really, really neat things in our space. Uh, Had his hands in a lot of things. I'm going to put his CV on the show notes just so you can see all the papers he's been associated with, all the speaking engagements he's been uh, invited to. Just an amazing person that I am just honored and humbled to have on the show. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Aaron Rosenberg. Thank you, sir. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg, you have done so much over your, and I believe it's 35 year yeah. uh, career at, at Rush Presbyterian. Uh, walk me through what put you on this road. Well, um, I initially started out uh, thinking I was going to be uh, in medical school, sort of a barefoot doctor with a black bag going from house to house. And uh, at some point during medical school, I realized that surgeons uh, or the surgical residents were all the ones with good-looking girlfriends. And I said, that seemed like a good idea to me. And I decided I was going to do cardiovascular surgery. But uh, during an orthopedic rotation in my fourth year, I uh, encountered biomechanics as it was being taught to the residents. And this was in my wheelhouse for my undergraduate education. And so I sort of became the teacher in the class and realized I could, you know, really do this. I also uh, sort of felt that at the time, uh, foolishly, that orthopedics was simple and it was just like being a bone setter. And I could do it at the same time that I continued to play music. Well, it turns out that orthopedics was a bit more complicated than I thought. And it was really difficult to do both at the same time. But uh, I decided to go into orthopedics and ended up uh, matching at Rush. I was uh, at Rush as a resident for five years. And during that time, I went out to uh, Denver to do my pediatric orthopedics, Denver Children's, and then did a fellowship with Henry Mankin in Boston. I initially had... uh, 
sort of signed up for a fellowship in London. And uh, my boss at the time, George Galante, decided he did not like my mentor in London and uh, wanted me to uh, find a new fellowship. So I ended up calling Henry Mankin and he accepted me. And I really had no strong interest in orthopedic oncology. But interestingly, uh, Henry's fellowship was more along the lines of what I call terminal orthopedics. It was sort of a combination of oncology and cases that people had just reached the end of the road with and didn't know what to do with. And Henry was really good about leaving all those cases exclusively to the fellow. And so I kind of got an education in uh, adult reconstruction, including infections and uh, non-unions and things like that, along with uh, oncologic uh, surgery. I initially had planned on uh, moving to Southern California as when I was going to college, all my friends uh, were uh, going to school there. And I really loved going out there to visit them. And I got a job at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. And uh, my wife decided that would not be a good place for us to go. She said, we'll be divorced in five years. Our children will all turn out to be drug addicts. <laughs> so she called my uh, boss in Chicago, George Volante, called his wife and said, can you give uh, get George to give my husband a job? And George called me up and offered me a job. So I went back to Chicago. And uh, have been there ever since. So that's sort of the path I took. Now, in, in terms of my uh, eventual career, I started out doing general orthopedics, anything that came in my way. I also was working out of a small hospital that uh, had a podiatry residency. And there were two podiatry residents who wanted to work with me. And so I decided to start a foot practice. So I did foot and ankle as well as uh, elderly trauma care, uh, hip fractures, distal radius fractures, et cetera, as well as joint replacement, and did that for four years. Uh, during that time, there were about seven people in the practice at Rush, and uh, I gradually gravitated towards joint replacement, eventually deciding that I would sort of focus on that, so I gave up most of the other subspecialty areas as I brought in to the practice friends of mine who did those sorts of things. So I brought in a, a new sports medicine guy, so I gave up scopes and ligament reconstructions. I brought in a foot guy, so I gave up foot. I brought in a shoulder guy, so I gave up shoulder. And I was pretty much left doing hips and knees. And uh, I also was pretty active in a research laboratory. We had a pretty strong gate lab. And uh, I did a lot of study of joint replacement patients and high tibial osteotomy patients. And that led to several publications. And I had a strong interest in assessing the way in which people's gait patterns were influenced by having their joints replaced. At a certain point, I had a, uh, uh, an opportunity to uh, go on the road and to demonstrate the use of a new prosthesis. Uh, for a company that was promoting a new prosthetic device that my boss had developed. And I gradually got involved increasingly with industry. I had a strong interest in education 
and worked with the uh, AALS for quite a period of time. I was on the board of directors, and I really was interested in uh, adult reconstructive orthopedic postgraduate education. But I found that the academy was quite hesitant to allow us to assess the performance, the educational performance of any of the people we taught in our classes. And that was pretty frustrating. And so I worked with uh, Carol Hutchinson, who had a master's in education, in addition to being an orthopedic surgeon, on uh, working with industry and uh, eventually became the uh, chairman of the board of the Educational Institute of Device Manufacture and utilize that position to try to improve the quality of educational materials uh, that were provided for orthopedic surgeons. I was sort of convinced that the company that did the best educating would uh, promote a strong bond with the orthopedic community. I also thought that it was essential for the training of uh, the industry reps, the sales reps, because I really saw them as being the fundamental link between the company and the orthopedic community, and that it was the quality of the reps that determined the quality of the relationship between the, uh, the surgeon and the implant manufacturer. So that, that sort of set me off on, on my career over time. I got more and more involved with uh, industry and doing speaking at various meetings, and I continued to do research, and meanwhile, built my clinical practice. Uh, pretty much my clinical practice was comprised of uh, primary joint replacements and complex joint replacements, including revisions. Sort of over time, because of my previous experience with oncology in particular, was pretty adept at doing large dissections um, for things like uh, proximal femoral replacements or allograft replacements of the proximal femur acetabular transplants, complex acetabular revisions, et cetera. And so those sort of became my uh, area of uh, focus over time. I've seen presentations of yours involving these massive uh, allografts, and, and I would get gastric distress just looking at the slides, thinking of being in the room uh, during that case. Did you enjoy that? Well, it, it allowed me to do sort of resections of uh, bony fragments or large segments of bone that was consistent with oncologic resection. And then it allowed me the opportunity to do the carpentry of replacing the bone segment with allograft. Uh, one of my uh, favorite cases was about a seven-hour case that was a hinged knee that developed a tremendous periarticular osteolysis with dissolution of the distal femur, the proximal tibia, including the tibial tuberosity and a, uh, a massive uh, cyst in the popliteal space. And so that involved uh, complex dissection and removal of the popliteal cyst, excision of the distal femur, excision of the proximal tibia, and then replacement of the knee with an allograft femur, allograft patella, allograft patellar tendon, and allograft tibia. Wow. And uh, that was about seven hours. And, uh, but I really enjoyed the, uh, both the resection and reconstructive aspects of it and really enjoyed looking at the post-operative x-rays. 
Uh, there was something gratifying about taking away really ratty-looking bone and replacing it with substantive-looking bone. So uh, eventually, I became less reliant on allograft bone for almost all of my replacements and turned more to uh, metal implants, particularly, for example, in distal femur and the upper end of the tibia. You threw out that word carpentry. I, I can't tell you how many surgeons I've worked with over the years that um, – that that seem to be gifted in that space and it translates so well. Uh, I worked with a surgeon once who was just so good with his hands uh, and seeing everything spatially. And now he's got his own uh, uh, bespoke furniture uh, company. So uh, do you, uh, do you dabble in, in woodworking? Well, yes. Um, I thought for a long time about what is the essence of what we do as surgeons. And, I particularly focused on the cutting and pasting aspects of being a surgeon. Uh, That is the handiwork. And uh, people like to say, or will frequently say to me, I know you must be uh, like an artist. And I tend to say, no, I'm not like an artist. I'm more like a craftsman. And so I have thought long and hard about craftsmanship and its relationship to surgery. And I sort of define craftsmanship as the uh, working with one's hands utilizing tools on a material to create a a structure that is consistent with your mental vision. And uh, that is true of woodworking, of mechanical uh, gasoline engine work, of uh, machine tool making, almost anything that you do with your hands. And uh, the concept of craftsmanship and why it's enjoyable and why it's fulfilling, I think, is a really important part of uh, being a surgeon. So I I retired from the active practice of surgery about three years ago. But every day I fill my day up with activities that involve handiwork, that is working with my hands. And as a consequence, I still feel very much connected to what it feels like to do surgery. Now, there are some differences, of course, in the operating room in that. There's a bunch of different mechanical type skills that you use, hand tools, power tools, threaded needle, uh, et cetera, which is uh, not as prominent in in some of the work that I do. But I do enjoy woodworking. I enjoy carving. I uh, like to do calligraphy, which is a uh, sort of a fancy writing technique with specialized pens. I like to do origami. I like to tie knots and study knot tying. And all of these are sort of like handcrafts for me. Origami, you said that word, and I'm immediately uh, transported to Blade Runner. Edward, uh, Edward James Olmos, that detective who makes those tiny little cranes. It's hard for me to imagine how he makes them so small, because it is a, uh, it's easier to do origami with large pieces of paper and increasingly difficult to do it with small pieces. But uh, there's something about being able to sort of read the instructions and convert them into the appropriate folds that allow you to make a creation that's uh, pleasing to the eye. So speaking of working with your hands, I have it on good authority that uh, that you're a fellow guitarist. I don't run into very many electric guitar players anymore. I don't know what that's all about, uh, changing musical tastes uh, probably. But uh, tell me what you're up to. Who do you listen to and, and what do you like to play? So um, the guitar is sort of a, a second instrument. Um, I also play percussion, 
uh, not really a drum set as much as bongos, timbales, um, accessory percussion. But uh, guitar is something I took up as a kid and have been playing for about uh, about 40 years. So I play uh, a little bit of everything and have been criticized by a couple of my teachers for having that propensity. That is, instead of focusing my attention in one given area, I tend to play uh, in one given area for a while and then kind of get bored with it and uh, switch styles. So I'll really be into playing the blues. And then all of a sudden, after seven or eight months of doing a lot of blues playing, I uh, decided I want to play classical music and I started doing Bach. And then after a year of Bach, I begin to feel like, man, this is just not funky enough. I got to play some jazz. And so I, I tend to sort of move from style to style. I, I do have a teacher who, uh, who told me that if I would just spend a couple of uh, days learning uh, how to sing the nursery rhyme, Go Tell Aunt Rhody, <laughs> in, a, in a musical fashion, I would make more progress on the guitar than all of my attempts to improve my technique and virtuosity. So uh, I... I sort of focus on trying to create music out of the notes on the page. And that requires um, sort of a delicacy of muting and bringing out certain string sets and incorporating uh, phrasing and uh, dynamics of loud and soft into your playing so that you create a, a musical piece that's uh, enrapturing. It really draws people in. And my tendency is uh, not so much to do that. My tendency is to just try to learn new songs. And so I pick up a song, I get it under my fingers, and I'm happy with it, and I move on to the next song, as opposed to staying with a piece and a song for a month or two months and really crafting it as a piece of musical expression. And so that's my challenge. I do play electric guitar, and I play blues and jazz uh, on the electric guitar. Um, on the acoustic guitar, I play some steel string, but mostly nylon string guitar. I play a nylon string with a cutaway that allows me to get up access to the higher frets. And uh, on that, I play both classical music and chord melody style music. Um, classical music, I'm working on the Bach cello suites. Uh, the Bach cello suites are a fascinating group of compositions done by Bach that was uh, discovered in the 1920s by what was then a world-famous cellist named Pablo Casals. Pablo Casals was perhaps the most famous cellist in the world. And while traveling on a concert tour, he would stop off in any given city at the local music shop that he could find. And he was in one in a small town in Germany and found a bound manuscript of pieces that appeared to be written for the cello and signed by Bach. And they were a series of exercises that he had written for his students of the cello. And Casals bought it for like 35 bucks, took them home, started playing them, and realized that they were wonderful pieces that could be used in performance. And so for about 10 years, he worked on them until he got them up to sort of performance quality. And there are six of them. Each contains six individual pieces. So it's quite a bit of music 
and uh, they're all relatively dramatically different. Um, and uh, eventually they got uh, transcribed for the guitar, and uh, they're just lovely. Whatever I lack in talent, I try to make up for in sheer volume, delay, and reverb. Yeah, there's no question that uh, there is a great sense of, I don't know what the right word is, power, uh, vigor, and playing an electronic instrument. You know, small motions with your hand can create very powerful sounds. And uh, reverb and feedback and looping and all that stuff allows you to really make uh, profound sort of statements that are very pleasing. Very much so. I had... uh... Two two quick notes. My uh, my wife uh, blessed me with a wonderful birthday present uh, this past weekend, a Blue Sky reverb pedal, which is the most amazing thing that I've ever heard. And my son has something called a Tonewood amp that goes on the back of the acoustic. Yes, I've seen that. It just sounds huge. It's it's amazing um, what the uh, just a, a some quality reverb and some ambient space around a note can do uh, to make it just sound incredible. That's how I returned to guitar playing when I was 35. My wife, my birthday, bought me a guitar and said, you should start playing again. And I started playing and have uh, not put it down since. I, uh, I did have about a two-year period where I couldn't play because I developed uh, De Corvain syndrome in my right hand. And so I had to stop using my right hand to play uh, and try to get that to heal, and it didn't really heal well. I ended up having surgery, and the surgeon prevented me from playing for about eight months. So the surgery had healed, so I did have a period away. But otherwise, I love to play. You triggered a memory when you were talking about the dynamic and the phrasing and all that. I'll never forget Carlos Santana saying that you could, yeah. you could produce more in one note than a hundred in the same space. Um, and, and that always stuck with me. It really is the right note in the right context at the right time can say so much. It's, it's not about yeah. doing uh, sweet picking and yeah, you know, that as well as uh BB King. Yeah. He, he, he could express a huge amount with very few notes. Uh, Carlos Santana is really a favorite of mine and, uh, the last time I performed in public was at the, uh, I received an award from the Arthritis Foundation and hired a band and I played with them and I played a Carlos Santana tune that was written by Tom Coster called Europa, which is one of my favorite songs. Oh my gosh, doctor. We're having a harmonic convergence here. Um, that is the song, uh, Gato Barbiera did the version that really jumped out at me early in my music career. And of course that was a saxophone yes. rendition of it. But, um, I play that song to this day. I have a, a wonderful instrumental track of it. So I get to play the, the, the melody over it. It's a very challenging song to play it perfectly. It is very challenging, especially near the end. I mean, the speed with which he is picking the phrases is pretty dramatic. It starts out relatively simple, but gradually as time marches along in that piece, you get to a very, very, very quick pace. Yes. But it's really hard to keep up with uh, a Santana's playing. It was a real problem for me when I played out in public because I, you know, played the 
the piece really pretty close to perfectly up until the last, I don't know, 20 bars. And all of a sudden I just started falling behind because it's just so hard to, to keep up with this pace. There's nothing worse than starting a song off perfectly and then kind of sonically falling down a flight of stairs at the end. Yes. Uh, it's one of the great values of the use of a metronome. And one of the reasons why I hate using a metronome is it reminds you of how much you fool yourself That's right. into thinking that you're playing in good time. And the truth of the matter is that what you do is you sort of hear yourself and you convert it into playing rhythmically in good time. And when the truth of the matter is that you slow down, speed up, depending on the difficulty of uh, playing that you're doing. And so it's only with the use of a metronome that you really sort of can get in the pocket of the rhythm. Honestly, I didn't know when I started this interview that Europa was going to come up. That's just, uh, that's really fun stuff. Uh, Arthritis Foundation, you brought it up. I've got to follow that lead just for a second. They honored you with a Freedom of Movement Award. And I saw that some of your former students endowed a chair in your name at Rush. Uh, you know, in terms of legacy, and I guess, you know, you have to think about that stuff at some point. You know, was it the students for you or was it the surgeries? Um, I think it was a combination of the two. Uh, there's a way in which um, I wouldn't use the word surgery. I would more use the word patience um, because I, I don't have a tendency to remember the surgery as distinctly as I uh, remember the patient as an individual. And so there's some sort of sense of legacy of having a relationship with the individual as opposed to the legacy of having performed an operation. And the students are truly the uh, main driving force behind my uh, uh, participation as a surgeon. Uh, I really enjoy the camaraderie, um, the, the focus on knowledge acquisition, the ability to sort of teach philosophically what I um, profess about surgery to uh, residents and fellows. I was fortunate enough to have trained over 100 fellows over the years, and uh, every year the senior residents come and spend three to four months with me. So I've really had a good opportunity to uh, interface uh, with uh, these individuals in an educational format that is very gratifying. I've been fortunate to hear you speak at many a meeting over my career, and you are so gifted uh, in your delivery of the technical mixed with humor. I counted uh, 327 invited uh, lectures on your CV. I'm assuming you really enjoy the teach one aspect of orthopedics? Yeah, I do. Um, I like interacting uh, well I like interacting in the educational fashion to begin with um, one of the things I did at, at the academy and then I had a strong interest when I left the academy and worked for industry in uh, an institute setting trying to uh, improve the quality with which we conveyed information uh, about all aspects of orthopedics from the uh, non-surgical aspects to the surgical technique aspects I also really like the concept of sort of a boot camp experience for residents that is getting them acquainted and familiar with the type of equipment and things that they need to work on when they first start out. Because uh, I found that residents, when they begin their training, 
are not terribly familiar with, like how to set up a fracture table, how to use the C-arm, how to get a compartment pressure. And so I like to make sure that uh, uh, we guide them uh, through that experience. In an acceptance speech, you referred to the idea that medicine has become a fungible commodity over the last hundred years. And other other than the fact that I look for excuses to use the word fungible uh, in a sentence, um, could you open that up a little bit? Sure. I think the history of medicine is pretty clear that at some point historically, tens of thousands of years ago, humankind uh, realized that if a person became ill, there was a strong likelihood that the rest of the individuals in the band or the tribe would become ill. And so they tended to seclude those individuals. Over a period of time, uh, I think that individuals developed a sense that they had excluded their loved ones from the tribe and selected out an individual to go be with those excluded individuals. They called that uh, shaman or the witch doctor or the healer, and they imbued him with certain powers, a closeness to the deity, uh, the ability to um, be with the ill person without having transmission of the illness. And we developed this longstanding tradition of selecting out individuals to uh, heal those who were sick. And uh, over time, this gravitated towards a more formal uh, definition of uh, involving the church and the placing of patients in monasteries or abbeys and uh, the replacement of uh, the individual healer with the concept of someone who is willing to sacrifice themselves for uh, the patient in exchange for an acknowledgement by society that they were special individuals. And so physicians developed a very large amount of respect in the community and uh, were expected to sacrifice themselves. And we eventually see this in the paintings of the physician sitting at the patient's bedside in the middle of the night, having ridden from home on his horse and buggy, uh, with uh, the the hope that uh, they could be with the patient while they experienced a crisis of illness. And yet there was very little that the physician could do for the patient. Matter of fact, over time, there was very little the patient, the physician could do for the patient until the beginning of the scientific revolution. We developed anesthesia and antibiotics. And so could put people to sleep, do operations and actually make a significant change in their illness. Uh, eventually, these changes became uh, fungible commodities. These uh, procedures were known to have a, a, a reliable benefit, and so we could uh, equate them with a certain amount of um, value. And so I think that's the sort of conundrum that we're at in medicine now, is that medicine, which used to be about self-sacrifice, is no longer about self-sacrifice. It's about uh, procedures and medical treatments being a fungible commodity, whether it be chemotherapy, antibiotic therapy, or surgical procedures. Um, there's an expectation 
that uh, they're worth something, and you'll get paid for it. There is a growing resurgence in love these days for cementless knees, and uh, I know there has to be out there somewhere some sentimentality for the smell of monomer in the room. Uh, did that describe you uh, in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I initially uh, sort of experimented with cementless total knees in the uh, early mid-1980s and found about a 3% failure to ingrow rate on the tibial side. So I went to uh, cementing uh, my total knees and have continued to do so for a little over 30 years with a remarkably low incidence of component loosening. The only patients in whom I really have seen any significant tibial component loosening have been in mesomorphic heavy set males that are very active play sports. And those patients, I tend just to add a small stem augmentation and cement those. I, I loved your line. It has gone into my file cabinet. I'm going to remember it forever. Uh, you were involved in a debate on this very subject. And, and I'm going to quote you on this. It's just great. Let's agree to respect each other's opinions, no matter how wrong yours may be. Yeah. <laughs> that was an instant classic. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, you did a, a CR knee uh, study in rheumatoid patients, and it just seems so counterintuitive to me. I was genuinely surprised reading it. 25-year follow-up on these patients that you didn't see any PCL insufficiency. Uh, that, that blew my mind. Were you a CR surgeon for all of your career? Did you end up at PS? or No, I, I, I use CR, I would say, 95% of the time. Okay. Um, I, I do uh, occasionally use PS, um, particularly in a really complex deformity where I have to do a lot of ligament release where I tend to use a spacer block technique. But uh, I, I really uh, think that the majority of patients have an intact cruciate ligament, and I prefer that that take the stress rather than the post and block mechanism of the PS. We have a lot of um, device reps that listen to the show, and we also have some surgeons that listen. And one of the things that I'm just fascinated to hear, uh, just on a technical side, you've done a lot of presentations on the stiff, multiply revised knees. And I was just wondering if you had any tips or tricks in those cases. Uh, I was in one not too long ago, and uh, just thinking about about you and, and your expertise on the subject. Any um, any words of wisdom? Well, um, I wish I did. Uh, it is a, a one of the most complex uh, knee revision operations that um, I do uh, because you have to remove scar tissue. Uh, you have to uh, loosen up, so to speak, the capsular envelope that the knee is placed in. And then you have to do a, a very precise a reproduction of the joint line, uh, uh, position of the patella as regards the femur, and uh, create stability of the knee while achieving full extension and at least 90 degrees of flexion. And this can be really difficult. Um, there is sort of a, a desire to remove the scar tissue that leaves you ligamentously unstable. And there's sort of a tension between those two that makes it pretty difficult. You also encounter difficulty in a knee that's been out mainly in extension 
of shortening of the quadriceps mechanism that results in a great deal of tension when you try to flex the knee. And so I use a pie crusting technique in the rectus to allow for further flexion. I was reading a, a paper just this morning about th this percentage of unhappy patients out there post knee replacement, post hip replacement. And I was just wondering if you could look down your career. I, I mean, are these, uh, is this expectation issues? Is there a certain percentage of people that are just not happy with anything? What's your, what's your guess on all that? So I, I have sort of limited my practice um, for the past three years to patients who are unhappy with their total joint replacement in the hopes of taking those patients uh, away from my colleagues who would prefer to see patients who uh, are straightforward and just need a joint replacement. And these patients usually require a good deal of attention. So um, I bring them into my practice. And I find that the majority of them are due to what I would call an expectation result mismatch. That is, the patient expects more uh, than the knee actually provides. And a vast majority of these patients have relatively little arthritis on their preoperative x-ray. So that's one of the things I look at very carefully is what did the knee look like pre-op and how was it the decision was made to do the knee replacement. Those are pretty uniformly unhappy patients. Um, the other is uh, patients that have a significant uh, abnormality in the geometry of the reconstruction, either overhang of the components or significant patella alta aha or rotational abnormalities of the components, patellofemoral problems, significant malalignment, or instabilities. So I divide them up into two camps, those who have something fixable and those who you really can't fix because the problem's in the mind. I saw something you wrote about pulsed electromagnetic fields, core decompression, uh, uh, just osteonecrosis of the hip. If if you were going to into a clinic this week and you presented with early onset AVN, what would you want? Well, um, I think a cordy compression is a really good operation in patients with early stage avascular necrosis. If it's before there's any collapse of the femoral head, I think there's probably a 80% chance or so of avoiding femoral head collapse. Um, unless the lesion is really large, that is a curvule angle of greater than uh, 250 degrees. So if it were me with an AVN lesion, which is something I think about taking prednisone, um, if it's pre-collapse, which I would assess on plain x-ray and MRI, I would get a quality compression uh, supplemented by some sort of bone augmentation grafting. Yeah, I'm seeing guys do that and push some uh, bone marrow aspirate concentrate up there with it as well, just trying to trying to prime the pump. It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, I've, uh, I've done a lot of those back in the early, mid-1980s. I sort of was uh, using post-electromagnetic field to AVN lesions and developed a large referral base of uh, AVN patients. And so... Um, once uh, I was done with that study, I, I began doing quarterly compressions on the recommendations of Dave Hungerford and Ken Krakow and Michael Mott. So 
Is there any macro level pearls that you would share with uh, the surgeons listening to the show regarding just building and maintaining a practice uh, in today's environment? My uh, approach is uh, very much sort of old school and that I see most of my newer partners who are excellent physicians being more new school and uh, their attitude is sort of how do we move with the largest number of patients through the practice as possible. And while I was also interested in doing that, there was no um, sense in my mind of uh, wanting to uh, avoid personalization of uh, my time with the patient. So um, I think that uh, having good communication skills, being able to listen to the patient, being able to educate the patient in a way that they're comfortable with, um, having appropriate office personnel to support you, either a physician's assistant or a nurse clinician, uh, or perhaps two, um, is useful. Um, I don't like the concept of uh, dashing in and out of the room to see the patient briefly at a post-operative visit. Uh, I like to uh, establish a rapport with the patient and try to put in the chart what the patients told me during that visit about their loved ones or what's going on in their lives. So when I greet them, I can bring those sorts of things up. So uh, I think the the watchwords from our mentors of uh, to, to good practice requires a ability, affability, and availability is probably true. Um, I, I think that uh, you can build a practice by having extended office hours. Uh, patients appreciate that. You can be uh, affable, that is, you know, communicate well with the patient, be pleasant, and uh, your abilities uh, are important. That is the quality of the work that you do. To the the device reps that you've worked with over all these years, what what separated the really good ones from the ones that were that were there? The thing. Yeah, the thing that sets apart the, the device rep, I think that they uh, represent the sort of glue between the surgeon and the device manufacturer. And uh, I think that it's hard to specifically say what qualities, but it's it centers around personality. Um, again, um, they need to be available, they need to be affable, uh, and they need to be able. Uh, they need to be able to bring the equipment in that is requested uh, when it's requested. Uh, they need to be able to interact in a pleasant way with the nursing staff and the surgeons. And it's really a, a complex job. Dr. Rosenberg, you have produced an incredible legacy of people, procedures, uh, presentations, and probably a few power cords. So I am... So thankful uh, that you took time out of your day today just to share share your story with my audience. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosenberg, for actually giving me a gift. After I edited this podcast, I realized that what makes a good guitar player is the same thing that makes a good device rep. A good guitar player, and, and I count people like Keith Scott, Brian Adams, Michael Thompson, David Gilmore, Neil Schoen, those people are just masters of knowing when to play, when not to play, when to play soft, when to play loud, when to 
strike with power and when to pull back. I mean, just genius phrasing, and it makes them very easy to listen to. And it's exactly what makes a device rep easy to listen to, isn't it? We don't just come into every situation with the same caffeinated power cords, but we know how to play dynamically to a room. We are reading the room just as they are reading the song and playing to the song. So, so much of the art of this thing being affable is the application given the proper reading of the room. I hope that inspired you as much as it inspired me. I'm going to be thinking about that this week and just continuing to try to get better at this thing and learning how to play to the room. And then that will hopefully be something that's pleasing that our customers want to hear, right? Look, I hope you have an awesome week. Again, I'm always thankful uh, for every one of you that uh, that chooses to listen to this show. I know you have a lot of other things you could be doing. So thank you for that. And I hope this stuff helps. So let's all be affable. Let's be dynamic in our delivery, and let's be relatable, and most importantly, let's all be safe.